Welcome back to Cinema Journal Presents Academia. Uh, my name is Christine Becker. I teach in the Department of Film, Television, Theater at the University of Notre Dame. And I'm Michael Kackman in the Department of Radio, TV, and Film at the University of Texas. And so we survived that difficult April, and here we are back on time in May, uh, which I'm very proud of. And we have reached episode five episode in the five. history. Yeah, it's, 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 it's like our fifth anniversary right now, the fifth is that, one. Is that paper? <laughs> I think so, which is really tough for us since we're all about the online. Um, well, and actually speaking of all about the online, this is also a stage uh, in its life when Cinema Journal is starting to grow. The universe is, is expanding online because uh, I just wanted to put in a, a plug for a few things that you can find online uh, related to Cinema Journal. Uh, if you go online to flowtv.org, you will find their essays from Cinema Journal authors from the current issue where they reflect back on uh, thoughts that they've had since their articles were submitted, which would have been as much as maybe two years ago. So we've got some really interesting stuff there. Authors reflecting on the you know things that they've thought thought of since places their research has gone since. Um, so it's a re- really excited about that feature. So that one's up on flowtv.org. That's a really terrific idea. It's a wonderful idea, and I'm, I'm looking forward to you know one of these. We're going to do one of these with each issue. So it's a really exciting prospects for the the kind of uh, online discourse we can have. And also, of course, Flow has a comment section. So if you read. For instance, Dana Poland's uh, article on Raymond Williams. He has got a flow post about Raymond Williams and television. His Cinema Journal article is about Raymond Williams and film. And then there's a comment section, so you can throw in comments and ask him additional questions about what he's written. So really excited about that. We're also extending the In Focus feature from Cinema Journal, and that will be a partnership with In Media Res. And you can find a link to that on our website. And that one lets the in-focus authors, again, continue the conversation online and uh, associate their posts with a media clip. So you can see video clips and audio. Uh, The focus of that in media rest is media industry studies. And we've got great authors, Paul McDonough, Lisa Perrin, Michelle Hilmes, um, Jennifer Holt, and myself. I introduce the, the week with explaining what we're trying to do here at Cinema Journal, expanding the online world of Cinema Journal. So really great stuff up right now. All right, lots of great resources online. What have we got coming up in this episode? Uh, For this month's episode, we first of all offer a new spin on the typical Cinema Journal Presents interview, so we'll tell you what that is in just a second. And then finally, we bring you our interview with SCMS web content manager Aviva Dove-Viban, so we appreciate her patience as she got pushed off from one month to the next. Um, And then we're going to end with a segment that's really a preview of an upcoming Vox Scolari segment, so we want to set that up. More about that later. Okay, so first up is our uh, Cinema Journal Presents segment, but we're going to throw a unique twist in here. This is a feature we're going to turn to every so often, especially when a good opportunity presents itself, as it did recently. Uh, And we're going to call this Cinema Journal Classics, where we interview authors about work they published in Cinema Journal, maybe 5, 10, 15 years ago, and reflect back on the impact of that work and its current use in media studies. So our starting point here is actually a 2005 issue of Cinema Journal, which featured an in-focus section entitled The Place of Television Studies. And this was inspired partly at the time by SCS having added the M to its title to become the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. And the focus of this in-focus was to consider the place of television studies within the film and and media studies discipline. And this was an all-star lineup of scholars, William Boddy, Lynn Spiegel, Tommy Miller, John Caldwell, John Hartley, uh, Michelle Hilmes, and Horace Newcomb. And so we've reposted these essays on our website 
website, uh, aca-media.org, if you want to revisit them and see what the place of television studies was thought to be circa 2005. But what you're getting here in the interview um, is just the perspective of one of those participants, Dr. Horace Newcomb, and his thoughts about his own place in television studies uh, circa last month as he's on the verge of retirement. I was lucky enough to get to sit down with him for a chat. And, you know, it's, uh, Michael, pretty sweet having this podcast as an excuse to, like, call up Horace Newcomb out of the blue and say, hey. We get to call anybody we want to. Yeah, and say, like, mind if we talk about television studies for a while? Yeah, and they they actually usually respond. Yeah, he, he replied and... Didn't ask, you know, what, what the hell are you talking about? Um, although I did have to explain the podcast to him. He hadn't heard of it, even though he's already been in it. He was in the first episode, right. but he wasn't yet aware of that. So, um, But I got to sat down with him for uh, a good lengthy time. We even saved some parts of this. I talked with him about the Peabody Awards, which he heads um, currently. He's about to retire, uh, but we're going to save that material for later. Um, so the segment you've got here is, is me talking to Horace Newcomb about television studies. Dr. Horace Newcomb is professor of telecommunications and the Lambden K. Chair for the Peabody Awards in the Greater College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia, though he'll only hold that title for about another month as he's retiring after an incredibly fruitful career as a television scholar. Some have even referred to him as the father of television studies, as he was one of the first American scholars to take television seriously, particularly as an expressive, aesthetic object of study. This was evidenced in his first book, TV and the Most Popular Art, published in 1974, as well as his co-authorship of the 1983 book, The Producer's Medium, Conversations with Creators of American TV. He's also edited eight editions of the indispensable Television, A Critical View, first published in 1976. And finally, one of his most foundational impacts on the field came from a 1983 essay he co-authored with Paul Hirsch entitled Television as a Cultural Forum. The cultural forum model was a reaction against media effects models um, emerging from social sciences that said media essentially injects singular messages into passive users. Instead, Newcomb and Hirsch argued that television is a rich site of competing, sometimes even contradictory, ideological meanings, fostering a potentially engaged dialogue within a community of viewers across a series, a night of programming, or a week of the TV schedule. Newcomb and Hirsch wrote in this original article, quote, most research on television, most textual analysis, has assumed that the medium is thin, repetitive, nearly identical in textual formation, easily defined, described, and explained. We begin with the observation, based on careful textual analysis, that television is dense, rich, and complex, rather than impoverished. Our model is based on the assumption and observation that only so rich a text could attract a mass audience in a complex culture. Newcomb continued to build upon those ideas in his scholarship, and always with respect for the potential television had as a mass entertainment medium, even if that potential didn't always uh, or even often go fulfilled. It's quite fitting, then, that Newcomb's last career stop has been as the head of the Peabody Awards, as the overarching standard for winning a Peabody is, quote, excellence on its own terms. In order to reflect back on the excellence that has defined Newcomb's influential scholarly career, the University of Georgia hosted a symposium in mid-April entitled Generations of Television Studies, which, following a morning session organized around graduate student research workshops, offered Newcomb's colleagues David Thorburn and Tom Schatz and his former students Amanda Lotz, James Hay, Lisa Perrin, and Jeff Jones presenting their thoughts on Newcomb's contribution to the field of television studies. I sat down with Newcomb one week later, um, and incidentally, this was the morning that one of the Boston Marathon bombers was on the loose, which gets referenced here. And we talked about the symposium and Newcomb's thoughts on his career and his relationship to television. 
So I'm in the office of the Peabody's on the UGA campus with Horace Newcomb, and last Friday uh, at UGA was held a symposium called Generations of Television Studies. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to make that symposium, um, but as I understand it, it was partly focused on your role in the development of television studies and featured former students of yours who themselves, in their own right, are now influential TV studies scholars. So how did those presentations make you think back on the contributions you've made to the field of television studies, the legacy you've established. What was it like hearing your work analyzed in that way? Well, to begin with, the the, uh, the entire event was planned as a surprise. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. My colleague here in the advertising department, Jay Hamilton, put it together with three graduate students. And Jay came into the office one day and said, uh, we're going we're gonna to have a symposium on television studies and explain that it was about generations in two fashions, that is the uh, generations of age and development and so on, but also the generating aspect of what one does and how it generates other scholarship. And I was puzzled and he said he would like for me to speak at the end and I was a little puzzled because Jay doesn't do television studies, Brian doesn't do television studies, and then he told me who was coming and very quickly it, it became clear that it was something to do with my retirement and so on. So I, I was I was absolutely thrilled and, and humbled by the fact that these people would come in to do this. And and it was, you ask, how, how was it to hear the work analyzed? It was more like hearing the work warped into some sort of um, discussion of a mixture of experience and career, but also uh, using some things in ways that I had never, had never occurred to me. Amanda mm. began with uh, uh, reflecting on one of my favorite pieces, uh, Magnum P.I., The Champagne of TV, mm -hmm. question mark, uh, put in by the editor, uh, and, and used that as a discussion of a cumulative narrative of television studies, which I thought was rather remarkable to, mm -hmm. to think of it that way. And, um, and David talking about uh, our early years together, and then other people uh, using parts of things that I had written to reflect on the field at large. And I, I, I think that was an interesting way to, to do it. Actually, I didn't realize when I saw the title, uh, and I know the morning was sessions with graduate students working with, with mentors, um, and so I assumed it just strictly meant the notion of generations, you know, in, in terms of, of genealogy almost. But I'm really interested by your notion that it was also this idea of generating scholarship, and then mm -hmm. particularly how your scholarship was talked about then. And um, that's a really fascinating idea, because I think it really gets at the idea of how television studies has grown and evolved and, and almost even exploded, you could say, in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, so... The, and, and from, um, I read a report on the symposium, Charlotte Howell wrote for Antenna a report on the symposium, and it sounded like there were really great discussions and debates about then the ideas you've offered to the field. Of course, you know, the one that always comes up, the cultural forum model, mm -hmm. um, got talked about. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that, about the, the legacy of the cultural forum model, where it stands now. Um, you, you said also you described in your previous answer sort of seeing your ideas kind of warped in ways you hadn't thought about. Was there... Um, any thoughts about that, about where the cultural forum model stands? The, the heart of the forum model, in some ways, is gone. Mm -hmm. Because the, 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 the concept was based on how does television serve the public in ways that are not reducible to narrow or small-scale analysis through questionnaires and surveys and so on. It was to say that there is this rich body of material 
But the point of it was that people would be pushed toward material that they disagreed with, mm -hmm. uh, that you would see in a television show something that startled you uh, from perhaps, from, for want of a better word, from an ideological point of view. And I don't like to deal with ideology because I like to deal with practical politics. And so you're sitting in your living room and you see something that offends you or that surprises you or that informs you. I think in many ways what I was referring to, what we were referring to as the forum is gone because now you can simply watch those things that you agree with. And for some of us that means, you know, we can spend hours with Breaking Bad, we can spend hours with The Wire, and we don't have to watch, uh, certainly we don't have to watch Fox News, and we certainly don't have to watch simplistic sitcoms and so on. So we may be missing things. Uh, and in that regard, I think the forum was dependent on three net work era with a mass audience uh, looking at the same things and seeing differences. Mm -hmm. Do you see that then as one of the big questions going forward TV studies has to deal with, the implications of, of those changes? Oh, I think, uh, I think the world has to deal with that going forward. I, I think that to whatever degree uh, electronic communication, which we used to refer to as mass communication and is now fragmented and, and segmented communication, to whatever degree it, it served a, a public and civic function, it's much more difficult to find that uh, available these days. Now, in moments of crisis, certainly after the marathon bombing and those kinds of moments, there is a sense of coming together around a, a tragedy or something. But even there, we get coverage from so many different angles. I saw a report that some ESPN viewers were complaining because ESPN was spending hours on the, on the bombing at the marathon, mm -hmm. saying, you're a sports channel. We get it. That was bad. Get back to your program. You know, so you get the ESPN version, but you also get that kind of response. Um, it came clear to me in 9-11 when I realized that the Comedy Channel was doing reporting. And so, mm -hmm. in a sense, even in, even in those moments, the, the model of the forum is gone, which is fine. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that it should be there, although mm -hmm. I do at times wish for something more shared uh, in programming, that, that we didn't always have to look at uh, different things. But I think that model has, has exploded. Mm -hmm. So the so the symposium lectures were geared around scholars focusing on individual works that you've written, and not just the cultural forum mm -hmm. model, but also your work on authorship and so forth. And so I was curious about what is your favorite work you've written, or things that you sort of are, are personally fond of, whether it's because you feel like you really made a genuine contribution to the field, or you just really love that piece of writing. Is there yeah. anything you would uh, you would point to along those lines? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, the, the, uh, in 1973 and 74, uh, just before The Most Popular Art came out, and while I was writing The Most Popular Art, uh, I was a daily television columnist for the Baltimore Morning Sun. Mm -hmm. I wrote 600 words a day, five days a week, without any kind of previews, without any kind of access to material. I would watch a television show, go down to the basement where my typewriter sat, and write 600 words and get in my car and drive it to from my home in this uh, edge of Baltimore uh, to the paper, which meant that I made a deal with the features editor that I could write about things 
two days later. They weren't reviews telling people what to watch. They were essays, little short essays on how to watch television, what to think about with television. I'm very proud of those. I, I, someday I'm going to dig them out and, and hmm. do something with them. Huge mistake, of course, in saying that Happy Days would fail because it really wasn't about the, the era that I grew up in. Um, and and so, uh, so those, I think, are, are strong pieces of writing. And I was writing uh, the most popular art at the time and teaching three courses. And, uh, and Sarah Newcomb, my wife, uh, made all that possible with two young kids at home. Uh, there are other things that, that I've, I've enjoyed writing. Most recently, I did a piece, uh, two pieces about Deadwood, which was one of my favorite shows. I really worked on David Milch's notions of what he was saying about, about Deadwood and my analysis of Deadwood and the characters, which I think it's one of the greatest uh, shows that's ever been on television. I, well, first, I would love to see you uh, put together a collection of, of that early criticism. I think because TV blogging now is so pervasive, there's a sense of like it's just been invented, like commenting on TV is something new. Um, and so I would love to see that and to, you know, again, sort of reflect on that legacy of criticism and then how criticism then gets tied in with, with academia. So. Well, it's, it's, it's doubly important. Well, not my work, but it's, it's interesting now because newspapers are, are firing all their television critics. And that was, as you say, akin to blogging, although it was very thoughtful. <laughs> I'll, we'll leave, leave, it, I'll leave it at that. All yeah, right. Yeah. The, and I want to throw in a, a, to, to thank you for an article you've written because I use it in, in my TV storytelling class all the time and it's one I think maybe people don't know about but The Sense of Place in Frank's Place which mm -hmm. is in the anthology Making Television um, because first of all it's about a show I adore and it breaks my heart it's not on DVD because um, I want to show it to my students and all I have is bootleg you know cruddy v, VHS dubs um, but also because it combines production analysis with aesthetic analysis and considering cultural impact as well and I love the idea of this notion that setting has meaning and I I think it's even an underutilized concept in TV that a place can feel like a unique space and have, have meaning to it. So I just, I, I love that essay. And uh, I'm curious about, because it, it sort of has at its heart um, a factor that's been in a lot of your work about this matrix of connections between industry, production, aesthetics, culture. So I presume that's an interest of yours, and, and if so, what's driven you to explore television in that particular way? Well, I, I like thinking about how things are made, because I, I'm not a very handy person. It, it does go back to the fact that I have always respected television and, and thought that despite the massive amount of triviality and, and work that, that's not very good, that it is a, a craft and an art form that's very difficult to, to produce and, and make meaningful. People always used to say, well, why are you interested in television programs? They're just, they're just hooks for commercials. And I would say, and you think that's easy? Uh, why do so many programs fail with audiences and in the pilots and so on? So I like to talk about uh, uh, how things are made. And when, when we did the producer's medium, Bob Alley and I uh, interviewed a lot of producer writers. They were, we called them producers, but almost all had come up through the ranks as writers and were still writers. And I like the way they think about the process they're involved in. Um, on one end, you get people who say, yeah, it's, it's just uh, mind candy and I come in and do it and get well paid. Even some of those people make great stuff. Other people say, no, this is really, uh, this is really meaningful, I enjoy it, and here's how we do it. And so I've always been intrigued by that. It's an elaborate process of meaning making and getting behind the scenes with people who do that has been, has been important. And then watching the way 
that becomes, uh, for I mean, the, the, the only accurate term is industrialized. And when you realize that uh, we had uh, uh, at, at the event last Friday, Steve Coonan, head of uh, Turner Entertainment, was here. And he said, yeah, I used to be around movie making and people still come to Atlanta to make movies uh, where we're based. And uh, they shoot a half page a day of the script. He said, with Southland, we shoot six pages a day. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's a, it is an industrial process, but it's incredibly creative. And that's what we tried to say in the in the producer's medium. A book, by the way, which, uh, uh, let's see, uh, 20, 30 years, let's say 83, 30 years later, still has not made back its advance. Uh, nobody bought that book. Uh, people use it occasionally. I don't know where they get it. But, <laughs> but, the, um, but watching that process and talking to people about that process is there. Now, uh, the, the direction of that in the work of people like John Caldwell goes even more to an even more finely grained approach dealing with below the line personnel and the way in which, and what I like about John's work, it's so important, is that he points, he makes the argument that, that all of these people are working from implicit theoretical positions. They're making assumptions that we as academics try to ferret out. Uh, sometimes we don't do it as well as they do. You, you can sit with an editor uh, and watch what they do and, and they, uh, it, it's like making magic. And, and you ask them about it and you say, well, yeah, that, that had to go there. We had to cut six seconds out. Hmm. You know, and that to me is part of the fascination with this. Mm -hmm. And also you've indicated a couple times in your answers about the importance of studying the popular. I and mean, I think that's to yeah. me, that's one of the, the huge contributions you've made of, of, and respecting the popular and trying to, to understand it. Um, and according to uh, Charlotte's report, you said at your symposium speech, I write about television because it changed my life. And for those of us who weren't here uh, to, to hear what you meant by that, I was wondering if you could say more about that. What did that, what does that mean that the television changed your life and that made you want to write about it? it it's interesting because I, I, I wasn't quite as aware of this as an influence for many years and I'd been teaching for well over 10 or 11 years, 12, and I was, I was still in the English department at Texas. I was teaching both in radio, TV, film, and English and, and um, I assigned my students a television autobiography. And, and it was not to say, what did you watch, but what, how did television play into your life? And I began to get these marvelous essays. And you know, one of my favorite anecdotes is a young man who said, I used to lie outside the, the, the family room where my parents were watching TV late at night, and they were watching Johnny Carson, and I would lie in the dark and listen to it, and, laugh, and I would hear them laugh, and I would hear Carson, and finally one night my dad said, come on in, we know you're out there, uh, and, and those kinds of things, and, and I realized at that point that probably it was early influence. My family had a television set pretty early. Uh, we watched everything that we wanted to, uh, like, you know, there was not anything to censor at that point in, in the 50s and 60s, uh, throughout the 50s mainly for me. And then the civil rights movement began, and I was living in Mississippi at the heart of it, and freedom riders were being beaten up you know, a mile from my house. And at the same time, I was watching uh, Matt Dillon save a Chinese laundryman from being lynched. Well, look what got off the stage. A Chinaman. Well, he's going right out with it. Oh, oh, ten foot boy, come walk him in that. 
We don't care why you came. All we care is when you get. It's going to be now. Hey, leave him be. You can't do this. The Bible We don't want this Chinaman or any of his friends or family to die. No family. One man. One man. One boy. Two. All the same me. All the same me. That's good. What's good about it, Howard? Take it out, Tim. Hold it, Tim. What's good about it? he's not having a family? It's good because there's too many Chinese in this country already. We don't want a lot of his kind running around and dodge, Marshal. What's your name, fella? Chen Lan Wong. Good boy. I'll catch him place Dodge City. All the time, work him hard. No make good trouble. Well, I'm a U.S. Marshal, Chen. You're welcome in Dodge. You can stay here as long as you like. Come on down out of there. Thank you. Thank you. If these two men bother you, you just come to me. Come on. And I was watching a show called The Defenders, which was about social justice week after week after week. And, and I realized that much later, this is why I did it. I, I, the, the other factor, of course, was, was uh, story. I've always been a sucker for stories of any kind. And, and so Sarah and I would watch television in the evening. She would teach school while I was in graduate school. And I would read 19th century novels. And then we'd go home and watch uh, Star Trek or something like that. I said, well, you know, that's a, that's a pretty interesting story. But it really was that sense that television uh, in those early years, uh, I realized later, uh, had given me such a broad sense of the world and what was out there, news, uh, documentaries, the great uh, documentaries of that period, and fiction. And it did take me a while to come to that realization, but, but it also meant that something had made us break with our culture. That gets back, in a way, to Frank's place and, and to think about what place meant. And it was not a pleasant time. Uh, we did some minor civil rights work, quite small in a way, potentially dangerous, I suppose. And, and uh, we were very angry about the situation there, and I think television had a lot to do with that. And what was the involvement of Mr. Charlton Heston? Two years ago, I picketed some restaurants in Oklahoma, but without uh, one exception, up until very recently, like most Americans, I expressed my support of civil rights largely by talking about it at cocktail parties, I'm afraid. But again, like most many Americans this summer, uh, I could no longer pay only lip service to a cause that was so urgently right and in a time that is so urgently now. Now, during college, I worked at night most of the time, so I didn't watch a lot of television. I graduated from high school in 1960, and so from 60 to 64, I uh, didn't watch a lot of, well, and from 60 to 63, I didn't watch a lot of television. And we married much too early uh, and are still very happy. Um, and, um, and at Christmas, uh, my dad, who was a postman but was working part-time in uh, a, a television repair shop, which he loved, came walking up to the door with a television set, a portable television, one of those early big heavy things. Uh, and Sarah's parents had bought that for us so that we would not miss the Christmas shows, mm -hmm. so that we could watch uh, Frosty and those kinds of things. Uh, so we've, we've always had television sort of at the center, uh, or at least a prominent part of our, our lives. So uh, I guess we can wrap up here. You are retiring soon. Um, so do you plan to maintain ties to TV studies, um, or are you just going to go see 
what else life has to offer? Uh, a little of both, probably. I may write something about some of this. Uh, and, and I enjoy writing about individual shows. That's what I've always done well, and I have things to say about television shows. I've, for me, uh, criticism is simply an ongoing conversation. Uh, one person says, this is what the show is about. Somebody else says, no, it's more about this. And it's the conversation that's interesting. I, I do not believe in the humanities that we pro ever prove anything. And I don't like it when people say this is the correct way to look at something. There are many ways of seeing, and, and uh, one thing you learn if you listen to viewers and audiences, or if you write a newspaper column and get people writing in saying you're dumb, um, you know, you realize that you, you don't have the last word. All right, well, let's let that be the last word then. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Sure. All right. Thank you. Great interview, Chris. Thank you. It was, uh, like I said, I really felt grateful I could call someone of his caliber up and, and have such a fantastic conversation about TV studies and about his own you know, place in, in the scheme of things. It was a really exciting chat. And now we're going to be able to bring to you our interview with Aviva Dubvibon, who is the ruler of all things web for <laughs> SCMS. Yeah, exactly. I sat down with her. Uh, this is going back to SCMS at March. Um, her official scholarly title, she's an honors faculty fellow in the Barrett Honors College at Arizona State University. Um, but as Michael said more directly, in terms of what I talked with her about here, she is the website content manager for SCMS. And we know there are many varied opinions about the SCMS website, I will just say. So we wanted to hear more about the site from the person now in charge of optimizing its use. Uh, I'm sitting at the SCMS 2013 conference at the Drake Hotel with Aviva Dove Viban. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Aviva. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be here. Yeah. How has your conference gone? Uh, it's going really well, and um, I've heard a, a lot of really amazing, interesting panels and workshops. So I've had a great conference. Great. Um, I assume you've also had some work to do in your capacity as you are SCMS Web Content Manager. So I first wanted to ask you what that title means. Like, what are your duties and responsibilities? The position is a new one, um, so my duties and responsibilities are, are ever-changing um, as we figure out what we need done with the website and with social media. So, you know, on the surface, it's things, sort of basic standard things like updating and maintaining the website, um, but I'm also um, responsible for, you know, some of the things like um, enhancing the usability of the website um, and trying to make it more a more convenient place and a more often visited place for members. Um, but I'm also trying to add new content. Like we've added a lot of video content, um, and I'm trying to keep that up and would like to keep that up over the years. And I'm hoping to also make it um, a more robust place in terms of research. Um, so not not scholarly research, but places where people can go for resources about like, film and media studies programs and things like that. Mm -hmm. And what specific things would you point to then? You, that you, so you had this goal to make the site more usable. Mm -hmm. What things have you done specifically so far to move toward that goal? Sure. One of the things that, the, the biggest thing that I've done, the most noticeable thing, um, is the homepage, which I'm trying to streamline and I wanted to minimize it so that it was very easy for people when they came to the site, whether they were members or not, for the first, you know, when they came to the site for the first time to say, oh, well, I'm interested in what it means to be an SES member, and it's right there, like, are you interested in membership? And then they know what to click, because right now the sidebar um, 
the left-hand sidebar is still a little confusing, if you're, if you, especially if you are a new member or you've never been a member before and you're just looking for information, say, about the conference, right, or about our career center. Um, so that's, I think, the most noticeable thing. And one of the things that I'm working on that is not noticeable yet, but hopefully will be in the next few months, is trying to remap the site. Um, because, like I said, that, that left-hand sidebar, um, at, over the years, as the site has been built up over the past three, four years that we've had this particular website, people have added content on, but not necessarily streamlined content. Um, and so we've ended up with like a lot of layering. So there's many different ways you can reach one thing, and it's not always completely obvious um, where to go. Mm -hmm. So that's those are some of the major things, and just in terms of the website that I'm working on. Okay. Um, and, you know, I've heard some frustration from numerous SCMS members, uh, frustration with the we website ways they feel like it, it might be limited. So I'm curious about from your perspective as someone who is in charge of working with this site, um, mm -hmm. do, what do you find most problematic about it? Are there things you would like to do but the platform simply won't allow it? Yeah, one thing I'm learning, and I started this position in May, um, so I guess I've been doing it for almost a year now. One thing I have slowly been learning is that my initial frustrations with the things that I thought were impossible are actually possible. They are just harder than they should be. Um, so one of the one of my initial frustrations with it um, was on the design end that it has you know there's a back end system that has a sort of very regimented um, I don't even know how to sort of how to describe it but a very regimented kind of design and it's not doesn't quite allow the same sort of freedom. Um, that I would like to have, but then I, what I realized is I've been working with it, it does, you just have to somehow integrate it into the system, hmm. um, which sometimes means like writing code outside of the system and then importing it in, which is a little silly, but it, it works, um, and which is how I eventually did the homepage, because I was thinking I'm never going to be able to do, you know, basically with like an image map, which is what's there with the system, it's not going to let me, and then I realized that I just had to do it like elsewhere and then import all code in, which is sort of boring, but... Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's one of my biggest frustrations, um, is just that sometimes I think, like, why is this, you know, why can't I do what I want to do, and it, there, it might take me several more steps than, mm -hmm. um, than it would with, I mean, you know, most of my experience up until this had been working with, you know, like WordPress and Blogger and then Dreamweaver, you know, kind of sites where there's a lot more freedom to sort of do whatever you want. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I think... The website has its particular advantages too. Yeah, right? that's what I was wondering if, if you could. Um, and, and as you say, it's it's almost kind of partly your job to help people figure out how to use the site, which sure. has got to be somewhat difficult. So I was wondering if I could actually sort of address that idea. Um, what, how how should members ideally be using this site, and what should they be in fact really glad about the site mm -hmm. that it, what it what it offers to them? Well, one of the big advantages of the site, and one of the reasons that we are with your membership, which is the um, company that owns our server. Um, um, is because it's a member manage management system, right? So that is one of the huge advantages of the site is that everything is um, sort of enclosed within the site. For me and for the home office staff, Jane Dye and Debbie Rush, um, that's amazing because that means we can, you know, access um, anything we need in terms of membership and, you know, help people when they get have the trouble. Um, the advantage for members themselves are things that I think are actually underutilized. One is which we have 
group pages for all the caucuses and SIGs, and some of them use them a lot, and some of them don't use them so much. The group pages are actually a really great place where the members can have some freedom in how they use the site in terms of, I mean, in terms of designing their own, you know, homepage layouts. I mean, they're restricted in the same way as I am um, in terms of design, um, but you can do quite a bit with it, um, and also in terms of communicating with their groups on that site, and I think that's sort of a really valuable thing that some people are using a lot and some people aren't. I think some people don't even know exists, right? Um, so with for the SIGs and caucuses, certainly it's a really good space. And then, I mean, one of the other things that I think is really valuable is just having everything in one place. The career center is there. Um, we have the forums, which are also underutilized, but utilized especially during sort of pre-conference time, which is good. Um, so everything is sort of contained within the site, um, including all the membership information. And I think that's really valuable to have. Right. So. Um, at one of the earlier meetings we, we had, you talked about this issue of uh, people, when they don't renew, get kicked out of their SIGs. And I was wondering if you could speak to how that issue works and how people can you know, overcome that little <laughs> obstacle there. Yeah, it's a bit of a sort of conundrum um, in terms of how any member organization works. Um, basically, what's, what happens is that if people don't renew um, at the start of the new membership year, um, they lose their affiliation with their SIG or caucuses. Now, actually, technically, they don't lose the affiliation. On the back end, you can still tell that they're affiliated. And as soon as that person were to renew, um, they would be reaffiliated with whatever groups you know, and caucuses they were originally affiliated with. Um, the problem comes in that gap of time, since a lot of people um, don't renew their membership until they found out if they've gotten accepted to the conference or not. Um, there's a gap of time you know, maybe three months or so, um, where people aren't getting messages um, from their SIGs or caucuses. A lot of SIGs and caucuses have gone um, then to Facebook or things like that in order to, to convey messages. And I completely understand that impulse. And it's, um, I mean, the, the, the problem is that we, you know, as a member-oriented organization, um, can't have people involved and members of SIGs and caucuses if they're not also members of the organization, right? So it's a, mm -hmm. it's a sort of weird system because then people go outside of the site and it's not one we've honestly completely resolved yet. Right, so. okay. Um, as I said, we're at the Chicago conference right now and it's really been visible that, that SEMS has utilized social media a lot more actively mm -hmm. in the past. So why do you see that as an important direction for SEMS to go? Well, there's a couple reasons. One is that um, you know, a lot of people, this sort of goes along with what I just said about the SIGs and caucuses, but a lot of people um, are using Facebook and using Twitter, and I think it's nice if we can be part of that, and then people can feel, in some ways, it's, it's PR both for SAMS, but also for them, right? So if, you know, we post something on Facebook and say, um, you know, check out the live streaming of this workshop, and if they were on that workshop, then they can post it to their Facebook page and say, look, you know, my, my, my workshop was live streamed. Um, or even, you know, something that, you know, CJ was doing with the, which I was not involved with, but I think is really fantastic with the sort of CJ reporters who were going through the conference um, and tweeting about various panels, that that's a nice space for people to be able to interact. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's really important. And I think that my second, the second sort of reason is that, um, SEMS is, it may not seem this way, especially when you're crowded into the lobby trying to get an elevator, but it's a relatively small organization um, for a professional organization like um, 
something like the MLA, which is this sort of huge behemoth, um, is 30,000 members, right? And College Art Association, which is my other sort of organization that I am majorly associated with, is 12,000 members. Um, now, of course, there are organizations that are more comparable to, my, to, to our size, but those are the organizations I personally have the most experience with. And I feel that because of that, we have to find other ways to do things. Um, and because I think that because we're film and media studies, um, we should be involved with media. <laughs> so we need to be doing things with social media. I think that's really important. But also because we're smaller, most of, I mean, almost everyone who works for the society is volunteer. There's very few of us um, who are actually getting paid to do any work. Um, I, I mean, I am. I'm one of the paid positions, but there's, there's not very many of us. And so we have to find other avenues, and social media is one way to do that and to have your members then help promote the organization, um, and I think that's really important as well. So. Yeah. You hinted at something there about the, the, the labor involved mm -hmm. in this. I wanted to just finish up our interview by asking you a little bit about how this position fits into the rest of your life as an academic. I mean, it seems like a substantial service undertaken. You have people, you know, coming from, you know, the president, the board wants this, now Cinema Journal wants this, um, and so, um, you know, how much time does this take up, and then what do you see as the value of that time spent for you personally as someone who presumably enjoys tinkering around with mm -hmm. stuff? Um, I didn't mean tinkering, <laughs> <It's> like, a, <laughs> no, no. like you're playing, but um, um, but also then as an academic, how do you feel like this is this position is the service you are doing for SEMS? How do you feel like this is serving you? One of the great advantages of this job is that I can do it whenever I want to, um, and as perhaps nerdy as it sounds, um, this is the kind of stuff I really like to do, like during my sort of off time. So you know, it's the sort of thing that you know, I'll come home from teaching, a long day of teaching, um, or you know, on the weekends when I've been grading for six hours, I think I'm gonna take a break, and I take a break by figuring out whatever the next step is for what I'm doing with the website. Um, I know that sounds really, um, really silly, but, <laughs> but it's true. So I mean, I, I feel that, yes, it is, sometimes it is a lot of work, especially like the few weeks leading up for the conference. I thought my head was going to explode. Um, but on a, sort of week-to-week -week basis, um, it's, it's something I can very much sort of integrate into the rest of my life, and I don't find that it is, um, I certainly don't find it onerous at all. Um, you know, and sometimes there's a little bit of time negotiation that has to happen, but I really do see this as really important for me personally um, as a sort of network and skill building kind of opportunity, um, but I also really enjoy it. So I think that, you know, that adds a sort of huge layer to it as well. Um, kind of like, you know, tinkering or however you want to <laughs> phrase it, right? Um, and I find it sort of fun, mm -hmm. so. <laughs> Yeah. Well, especially it must be gratifying that, you know, as, as we've said, I think the website has a lot of potential to be really mm -hmm. important to us and that you basically have the keys to that, you know, to make that happen. And that sure. has to be rather gratifying to know that you've got, you've got a say in how that, that goes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and one of the other things I forgot to mention earlier that I'm working on, which is not strictly website related, but has sort of gotten wrapped, I, mean, I suggested it, so it's gotten sort of wrapped into my role in the website, um, is that... Christina Peterson, who was hired um, last year as an SEMS researcher, and she was it was only a year-long thing that she did, started to create a list of film and media studies programs based on our membership. Um, and I've sort of taken it on to expand that list because I think it's really important. Um, you know, we are the sort of premier film and media studies organization, at, at least in the country, but I would say in some ways internationally as well, uh, or at least we have a lot of international ties. 
And I think it's really important that we can provide those resources to our members, one of those being a sort of comprehensive list of places where you know, undergrads and graduate students, um, and actually even job seekers, right, um, can think about looking for jobs or looking for um, you know, places in programs. So I'm starting to, it's, it's a slow process, starting to try to compile a comprehensive list of film media studies programs that I hope will eventually go on the website, and also that I hope we can use for research purposes, um, so to gather information about how many people are getting PhDs in, you know, in film media studies, how many people are majoring in various aspects of that, from, um, you know, from minor film minors in English departments mm -hmm. to, you know, you know, full-on PhD programs or MFA production programs and things like that. So, that's been a sort of side project of mine. Um, you know, that sort of tangentially has to do the website, but I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, it's mm -hmm. just sort of the labor of you know, actually compiling all that information because, shockingly to me, it's not easy to find. And mm. You have to actually go, th it sounds, this sounds totally crazy, but you actually have to go through individual universities' websites to find, mm. you know. Which isn't always fun. No. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right, well, this sounds like really exciting things. I look forward to uh, seeing how the website continues to develop over the next couple of years. Yeah, I do too. I'm, I'm hoping it will become a place, ideally I'd really like it to become a place where um, people can go for information, but also to sort of see new and interesting content, things that the society and its members are doing. Mm -hmm. so. Great, well, thanks a lot for talking to us about yeah, it. Yeah, thanks so much for talking to me, Chris. All right, bye-bye. Bye. For our final segment, we want to return to the Vox Golari idea that we first test drove in our last episode. And Which I this, think was very successful, by the I way. Think I thought so. it was, I thought it was I a lot of fun. So. It was a lot of fun. You know, if you recall, last time we asked media scholars to reflect on a media text or a person or a moment that really prompted their early decision to move into the field. And we got some terrific responses. Yes, we did. That's good stuff. And so we wanted to take another stab at this and pitch a different question. We want to invite you to think about your own responses and consider sending us one. So our question this time, tell us about a moment when you were surprised in the classroom. Now, surprise can mean all kinds of things. Sometimes abject terror, sometimes humor, any number of things. Right. Um, now, I've got one. Chris, have you got one in mind? I think I we've do all got one. these kind of stories, right? Yes. I thought it, it took me a while to come to mind. I really sat and thought, and I thought, God, I don't know. And then I thought of what I thought was kind of the perfect one. So I do have one. Let's hear it. Mine goes back to the very first day I taught a class. Um, and to explain, I have to backtrack a little bit. Uh, at Wisconsin University of Wisconsin-Madison, where uh, Michael and I both went to grad school, film and television studies are housed within the Communication Arts Department, which is also where the Introduction to Public Speaking courses are housed. So grad students come in, and whether they're in film, media and cultural studies, rhetoric, whatever, they get to TA for public speaking courses, and that helps pay their way through grad school. Now, when I say grad students TA these courses, I mean there are numerous standalone sections, and each TA gets to run their own individual classes. So there's a standard structure, you know, every class follows, and, and materials, same book, all that kind of stuff, but there's no professor. Your section is all you, from lesson planning to grading, and from day one through the final exam. So I found out I was getting this opportunity only a few months before starting grad school, and I I could not have been more freaked out by it. Um, 
And especially because as an undergrad, I barely spoke in class. I was one of those students who, as a professor now, drives me up a wall because I was smart. I loved the material. I wrote great papers, but I refused to speak in class. <laughs> I, I, suppose I was probably too afraid of being wrong or whatever, you know, is, is behind that. So I went from being a student who never spoke in class to a teacher teaching students how to speak publicly. We got one week of prep before the first class. We had meetings with the coordinators and such. And then we were given our rosters and teaching materials and, uh, you know, a hearty pat on the back for good luck. So first day of class, I, and I had gone straight to grad school from undergrad, no time, time taken off. So I was only, you know, at best like three years older than these students. And I was certain they would instantly peg me as a fraud. I expected I would start talking. They would share puzzled glances with each other. And then like one by one, they would get up and leave. Um, but I started talking, telling them about the class and basic concepts of public speaking. And they started writing down what I was saying. They took notes. <laughs> and so that was my first surprise in the classroom. And maybe really even my biggest, uh, that someone thought something I had to say was worth writing down. So it taught me the lesson. At the front of the room, you have an incredible amount of control. The students come in assuming you know what you're doing because you're in the front of the room, so why wouldn't you know what you're doing? And frankly, I didn't know what I was doing that first day of public speaking class. I probably didn't even deserve to be at the front of the room given my lack of expertise in the subject area. But seeing that they had this instant trust that I did was an enormous relief. Now, of course, you can squander that trust very quickly. If you come in and aren't prepared, um, especially on a repeated basis, you have to work hard, learn the material as best you can, even if you're staying only one reading ahead of the students. But I found that if you do maintain that image of competence and preparedness, students will give you a lot of rope. And in fact, that first class was also one where later in the semester, I literally fell out of my desk. I tripped, basically. I didn't realize I was sitting up on, uh, on a left-handed desk, and I swung my legs to get up and write something on the board or whatever, and I fell over. And I even did it twice. Uh, and still... <laughs> Even after that, they wrote down what I said. So that's kind of the lesson of my surprise. Keep in mind, anytime you come into a classroom and feel unprepared, remember, you're the only one who knows what's really supposed to be going on. Maybe you meant to fall in that chair. It could um, be a plan. Right. But for me, that's always been a comforting thought, and I learned it on my very first day. I love that story. That, that does take me back to that time <laughs> when we were teaching that course. because Yes. It was... It was terrifying. Well, that's I think that's probably why it's so memorable because it's just seared into my brain that yeah. very first experience. I could see, you know, the students getting their pencils out and writing things down. It's absolutely, uh, you know, very vivid. So my story. So uh, yes, what is your surprise? My Vox Galari surprise is actually related to that course, but not um, not actually taking place within the confines of Vilas Hall. Mm -hmm. When I was a dissertator. The first off-campus job that I ever applied to was teaching, public speaking, yet again. Um, but this time it was through the UW Baraboo satellite campus, teaching public speaking at the federal penitentiary at uh, Oxford. And so... Well, you taught at Oxford then, right? That's what you <laughs> can tell fact, people? <laughs> I did. I did teach at Oxford. It was FCI Oxford, <laughs> Federal Correction Institution, Oxford. Right. Wow, that's right. I've got to put that on my Vita. <laughs> Um, so when I was teaching at Oxford, it was, you know, it was the same kind of drill, you know, I was teaching basically the same course. And I had 18 or 20 students ranging in age from probably 19 or 20 to mid 60s, with all kinds of colorful pasts and interesting stories to tell. I can um, imagine. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty interesting. And so I, you know, I just kind of taught the course the only way I knew, which was to get up there and wave my arms around a little bit and try to get people talking. 
And so at one point, the students were pitching their ideas for the speeches that they wanted to give for informative speeches about, you know, a topic um, of their own choice. And so because audience adaptation is clearly an important <laughs> principle of public speaking, I encouraged them to solicit feedback from their classmates before they got to work on their, on their topics. Mm -hmm. And so I had this one guy get up and, and he was talking about this, um, this idea he wanted. He wanted to do a speech on, on investing, on how to set up a mutual fund uh, portfolio, how to manage your assets and that kind of thing. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh man, that really, you think this is the right speech for, um, <laughs> for, you know, a, an audience that is, that are like you inmates in a, for a federal pen. Um, and, and so I just, you know, I just opened it up for, for comment. And cause I was, I was absolutely certain that, you know, that this one would be torpedoed, but mm -hmm. I opened things up and instantly several hands went up about how people wanted to hear it. And this one guy who never really wanted to speak in the class too much, but he was probably in his mid fifties. He was an old biker and he raised this one big tattooed arm and, and said, portfolio diversification is the key principle for the nineties investor. I want to hear that speech. Oh my goodness. So you basically had Stringer Bell. In I your, did. I in did. Class, I did. And, and in fact, we did hear the speech. It was a good speech and it was very informative. And so the lesson I think for me is to never underestimate your students and never to, never to assume that they are just one thing. It's so easy for us to overlook the complexity of our students. And I think if there's one thing, one generous thing we can do as teachers, it's to recognize that they can be multiple things at once. Mm -hmm. I really like that idea, and especially the idea that they're different people outside of the classroom, because I oh, tend absolutely. to think of them as just like the person who sits in that desk as a student. Right. And when you can get them to bring in things that are from the outside world, you know, that could really lend, and especially like, you know, as I said, back in college, I was afraid to speak. But when you can get students to bring in their perspectives, their worldviews, their experiences that can really enrich a, a discussion. So those of you out there in our listening audience, if you've got a, an idea for a response to this question, tell us about a moment when you were surprised in the classroom. Let us know. Record it. Yep. And send it to us at info at aca-media.org. Yep. And all you have to do, just tell your story into, uh, you know, if you have a digital recorder, that's great. If you have a smartphone that, uh, you know, with an app, that's, that'll work too. Just uh, record your, telling your story into your device and email us the file. Simple as that. And you can all keep right. it short. I know that, you know, well, I tend to go on kind of long. I like telling stories. Yeah. So. Um, but if you can keep it relatively compact, that'll help us give um, and give lots of people an opportunity to, to share their stories. And that's also a good uh, point to raise that our next episode is going to have a bit of a teaching theme. We are uh, going to have a teaching roundtable that Bill conducted. So I think, am I correct? And we're actually going to hear Bill's voice. I think next it's episode? actually possible that we might hear Bill's voice. I'm not sure if he's right. going to process it so that he sounds like he's in the witness protection program. <laughs> Right. I'm actually hoping for that now. That's a great idea. I know. That would be good. Um, so we're going to have a bit of a teaching focus in the next episode, which I think is a, a really exciting uh, factor. So look yeah, for that forward to it. In, uh, in our next episode. All right. ACA Media is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame. And with the production help of Bill Kirkpatrick and Todd Thompson. 
And we would like to thank the participants in this episode, which is Horace Newcomb and Aviva Del Viban. And that wraps things up for now. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.